Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm Lori Barkman. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself the business transition Sherpa. This podcast guides entrepreneurs from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. What do I do when I'm not hosting a podcast? I work with owners to maximize business value with my firm, small.big. And as a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor with Stony Hill, I guide you through the complex process of selling your company. Tune into Succession Stories for weekly insights to reward your hard work and avoid succession regrets. Hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at SuccessionStories.com. Here's to your success. Is this the year to sell your company? Don't leave your exit to chance. Stony Hill Advisors works with entrepreneurs like you to get ready for what may be the biggest transaction of your life. Learn what your business is worth by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. Rebecca Monet is CEO and Chief Scientist of Zorical Profiles. She's fascinated with neuroscience and human behavior as it relates to business success. Her tools help franchisers and potential franchise owners predict where they might have the greatest likelihood of success. During our conversation, Rebecca shared her story about building businesses, letting go, and some tough lessons she learned along the way. She developed her intellectual property that fostered growth and a strong client relationship. But what Rebecca thought was a channel of growth unexpectedly became her biggest risk. The message that I think is important in this episode is that you cannot build a business that rests on your own shoulders. And having the guidance of trusted advisors on your side can help you avoid unforeseen pitfalls. Enjoy this episode about creating a business that's transferable to maximize your value with Rebecca Monet. Rebecca, thank you for joining me this morning on Succession Stories. It is going to be a really interesting and fun conversation because I know just looking at your LinkedIn, you're the first person that had so many deep keywords about franchising, but then you described yourself as a professional cupcake maker. So I have to learn more about that. (laughs) So welcome again. Let's welcome you and tell us about the cupcakes. Oh my gosh. It's so good to be here, Laurie. Cupcakes. It's a big thing in my family. It started a number of years ago, about 13 years ago, when I was living in San Diego. And my son and his wife and two children at that time came out to visit. It was around Easter time. And I was looking for something that we could do as a family, right? So we decided to make cupcakes. And I got all the decorating stuff, you know, those special things that will make different icing on your on your cupcakes and shapes and colors and all of that stuff so we sat down at the dining room table and we were decorating cupcakes with various themes of uh, Easter you know bunnies and chicks and you know all of those kinds of things and my son who is handsome and strong and macho is kind of poo-pooing this whole you know cupcake kind of a thing but he's also extremely detailed so he sits down at the table and all the rest of us are having a blast making these cupcakes and he's critiquing us like 
oh, no, you, you could do this a little differently. And if you only did this, it would be so much better. And pretty soon he's picking out the stuff to do the decorations on the cupcakes. And it made this beautiful memory of this macho man sitting down with his family making pretty cupcakes and ever since then, a few times a year, we'll do the same thing with the family is to sit down and decorate and make cupcakes with the children and with the grandchildren. It's this beautiful bonding experience. And honestly, we've gotten pretty good at it. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to have an Instagram channel for that. Well, it doesn't surprise me knowing what I know about you and your history in business. You got started in your career as a therapist. So the bonding, the the emotional side of getting involved in making the cupcakes and feeling good, that's why I'm sure you went into therapy, right, to help people. Tell me a little bit about being a therapist. And of course, part of this story is becoming an entrepreneur. And so tell us about that, too. Yes. So I was a therapist for a number of years, and I absolutely loved it for all the reasons you're talking about, which is this idea that you could get into someone's head and help them straighten it out in some way so they would have more fulfilling lives. So I, I absolutely loved what I was doing and I did a lot of it one-on-one. -on -one. But what was interesting about my private practice is I only worked with business owners. Initially, it was accidental, right? I didn't work with folks that had alcohol problems or marital problems or, you know, financial issues or any of those kinds of things. It just seemed like I was attracting business owners that were coming and saying, Rebecca, what's preventing me from getting to that next level of success? So that's why they were sitting in that chair and I became more and more fascinated with this idea of performance and success and neuroscience of what causes some people to have phenomenal success and what causes others to forever be struggling. And I just became very, very fascinated with that. So, and you're right, that ended up taking me into a world of entrepreneurship, which is a whole nother story. You sold your practice. I did. I did. It was really interesting because one day I had a client of mine who was running a business in San Diego and our work together was allowing him to have some really great success. And he says to me, Rebecca, could you do this for a group of people? Because we were doing it one-to-one, -one, right? And my background was as a missionary's daughter, a pastor's daughter, and I was taught to be very quiet, very submissive behind the scenes. And so when he asked me, could I do this in a group scenario, I said yes without thinking, right? And I thought it would be, you know, six, eight people around a conference table. The end result was it was 300 entrepreneurs in a room and I'm walking on stage. First time I'd ever spoken in public. And I got to tell you, Lori, it was like I had done it a thousand times. It was like where I was meant to be. So I got up there, did my thing. And pretty soon these 300 were saying, can you come do this? And can you come do that? And I began to be traveling all over the world, teaching these techniques of how to harness 
what's between the ears to grow a successful business. So that took me traveling, 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 which I also enjoyed because I got to see all kinds of wonderful places in the world and learn about different types of businesses. So I went from a therapist to a public speaker and a trainer, which had me then have to ponder, can I do both, right? Can I do both? And I decided that it was time to sell my private practice. You created a set of tools or you created something transferable. Normally in these situations, like a medical practice, a therapist practice, you are the main attraction. So what was inherently transferable in that sale? You know, it's so true. And I think that's the downfall of a lot of entrepreneurs is they build a business that's on their own shoulders. It's not transferable. So it was a set of techniques that were effective in getting people out of a stuck state and getting them where they needed to go. So it was a process that I had created that was very transferable. It was something I could teach others. In fact, that's what ultimately happened when I was traveling all over the world was I was teaching others these techniques that they could use on themselves and on others. And so it was it was a process that allowed me to then, you know, train others and be able to transfer that. The other thing that was transferable was the the actual real estate, right? So if you have a half a dozen therapists that are using the exact same technique, whether you're licensing it or or simply, you know, taking a piece of the action from their practice because they're using your techniques, but there was also the the real estate. I knew that real estate was a consistent asset that would in, increase. And it didn't make sense to me logically to be leasing a building to run my private practice. It made more sense to me to buy the real estate. And ultimately what happened was the therapists that I had trained that were working in the practice and there was a reputation, you know, they would go to these other therapists instead of, instead of me. It was the same process, right? Just a different therapist. And ultimately they purchased Uh, the practice and the building, which set me free to go travel and teach. Yeah. And you had this entrepreneurial bug and the skill set that you had developed, which then led you to other tools that you had created. So let's switch gears and talk about that. You've come from this psychology of how do we draw success from something we already know, as you said, between our ears. And how do we find success when we're stuck? And tell us about what you did next. So obviously, I loved the traveling and I loved the teaching and I loved having a bigger impact where everything was one to one. Now I could do those same things in a group. So once again, I'm developing tools, I'm developing training materials, I'm certifying others that they might be able to to train these folks and these groups, right? So that business continued to grow and I had folks certified all over the world to use the same techniques that I used in my private practice. So that business, you know, as it continued to grow also became to a point where it was not in any way dependent 
on me. I was making money off of the certifications, but I had trainers that could certify people. I had materials. Back then, it would have been, you know, cassettes and CDs, you know, a little different than it is today where everything is online. I likely today would have put it on an LMS, you know, a learning management system online. But back then, it was in the form of cassettes and those kinds of things. So it was a very enjoyable process because I felt like I was making a difference while at the same time providing a livelihood to many other trainers and facilitators. These were early days, Lori. Today, we would call these people coaches, right? Right. You know, there's a whole world that's been created in coaching. In my time, it would have been considered therapy, (laughs) and you would address that. So basically, it was creating another system where others could replicate without having to be a true psychologist. These were techniques that anyone could use. Well, clearly you found a market because you found your way to the franchising industry with a set of tools that you had created, which became the company called Proven Match. And so I think that what you're describing is, you know, that journey of how you got there. Tell us about franchising. We've talked a little bit about franchising on this show. We've had two different guests that have come on where we had that conversation. One who acquired and is still running some successful franchises, Chris Sinkar, and also Laura Co, who created Snapology. And she's yeah, licensing. I know Laura very well. You know Laura, yeah, mm-hmm. based here in Pittsburgh. And she has a wonderful global franchise. Mm-hmm. It's a learning education, hands-on environment for kids. And with Legos, it's amazing, robotics and everything. So we've had some conversations on this show about franchising, but some might be surprised to know some of the fun facts. I know you probably know a lot of the fun facts and you can check my check my stats here, but about 10% of all businesses in the U.S. are franchises. That might surprise some people. It's And in terms of employment, I saw some data ranges, but it could be as high as 8 million people in the States are working for franchise businesses. You and I had talked off air and we both agree that franchises are a great option for entrepreneurs who either don't want to start from scratch for the big idea or risk profile or also because of the ability to get capital. Point being, there's a huge market. There's a huge market. How did you find your way with Proven Match to create tools to help the franchise industry? So I was used to creating tools, right? That was always my mindset that you want to leave something behind in your wake, so to speak. But franchising, I wasn't familiar with. I was having true entrepreneurs, folks that were inventing, creating their own businesses. So what happened was my kids became teenagers. And um, one of them, my daughter, needed another set of eyes on her. So I, I knew it was time to be home more and not traveling as much. And so I went to bed one night and I said uh, in my prayers, God, I don't know what's next. I'm loving what I'm doing, but I need to be closer uh, to home. Tell me what's next. So I woke up the next morning and I had two words in my mind and it was business broker. And at the time, I didn't know what a business broker was. I knew what an entrepreneur was and a business owner was, but I didn't know what a business broker was. 
So I pulled the yellow pages from above the refrigerator. Again, we're talking a few years ago. Pulled it down and I opened and looked for business brokers. And there was about three or four of them in San Diego. And I called each one of them and I said, you don't know me, but God told me to call you. (laughs) And I don't know what you do, but I want to learn everything about what you do. I'll work for free. Just let me follow you around. And Three of the four thought I was nuts, and I probably <laughs> at that time. And, but one, Howie Bassick, um, had founded a company called FranNet, and at that time he had five brokers, but they specialized in franchising. And so I would go into the office every day and observe what he's doing, which is one of my favorite things to do is observe people and what makes them tick and and create the success. And he began to teach me about franchising and I began to teach him about assessment tools and methodologies and systems that could be replicated uh, to help people be successful. So that was my first introduction to franchising and I was blown away Lori, because franchising is an opportunity for someone to own their own business without having to create it from scratch. The franchisor has already worked out the product mix and the services and the marketing strategies, and they got a brand that's recognizable. And basically, it's someone that can step in and bring the the spirit of business ownership, the pride of ownership to their local markets. But there are processes and systems and branding that's already in place. So it was a way for people to go into business that may have never been able to do so on their own for various reasons. Yeah, absolutely. And so through this relationship, you understood what some of the problems were and you figured out that maybe one of the biggest problems was finding the right match. If the franchisee was not a fit for the franchise, that's going to be a problem. Very costly, right? To unwind that or to have that franchisee fail is not a good thing. Tell me about that. How did you hone in on what problems to solve? Well, and, and that's exactly what I started to see was it really was about fit. If someone chooses the wrong business or starts the wrong business, it's like wearing the wrong size shoes and trying to run a marathon. It You just never get the traction. You never get the speed or the momentum or the ultimately the value out of that business. So it has to be a business that's a good fit for uh, an individual. So for the first time, I was no longer measuring or assessing using psychographic assessments on the business owner themselves, the inventor, the entrepreneur. I was now looking at two things. I was looking at who that individual was and who that what that franchise system was and what was it about those two things that would allow some folks to be wildly successful and others just to sort of have an average uh, business. And I saw that there was a, a an interdependency there that needed to be measured and needed to be understood. So folks made wise decisions about what business 
they needed to be in. Some of things we're already aware of, right? So if if I'm taking a job or I'm buying a business, if I'm not a good cultural fit, then I'm going to be uncomfortable and not as good at embracing systems. That one we kind of all know. There has to be some kind of cultural fit. But there are many different markers, psychographic markers, because this is a true partnership, right? Um, you're married to this franchise or for a, a probably 10 years, depending on your contract. And so you need to be comfortable within that uh, organization. Who is your most important customer? The person who buys your business. Stony Hill Advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell. Get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. This is a great example of what I advocate, not only on this show, but when I'm a adjunct professor at Carnegie Mellon in the class that we teach is about corporate entrepreneurship, is finding a problem to solve. If you mm-hmm. have that hole in the wall, you certainly you're going to need to buy a drill bit. And what you buy is the drill bit. But what you really need is the hole in the wall, right? You really need that quarter inch hole. You get the quarter inch drill bit. And that's just one example. I love how you sat with Howie and learned and you probably overheard conversations and you were observing market problems. So you were learning firsthand what these problems were. And that's a big thing we advocate. Find the pain points, understand the problems. Then you develop the tools over time. Now, were these your tools and then FranNet became your client? Is that how it worked? That's exactly how it worked. I, I had this opportunity to observe how a phone call after phone call, email after email of how we interacted. So I took the, the science that I already understood and continued to do some research of other sciences that might apply to this idea of partnership, this idea of being a business under an umbrella, because you're not really an entrepreneur at that point. So I had to take what I had already created and look how I could customize it, how I could uh, have it have a very specific application that I had never looked at. Uh, before. So you're right. That's exactly what happened. Um, the tools then became um, licensed to Franet, who then uh, provided that tool to their brokers. Now, when I first started with Franet in 1993, they had five brokers. And of course, they continued to grow. Um, and even to this day, they continue uh, to grow as a, one of the best brokerage uh, firms out there. And so that relationship was nearly 20 years. Is that right? Yeah. 19 years. Amazing. Uh, they were, they were clients of, of mine. Yeah. So it's not probably surprising then if I say to the audience that hear this, that FranNet acquired your business because it was what we call a natural acquirer. A natural acquirer can come from a variety of places. It can be a supplier. It can be a client. It could be a competitor. And here we have a great example of your client purchase business. And this was not a new relationship, right? Almost 20 years. And you had sort of founded it because of the problems that you had learned about there. That sounds like an interesting outcome. Was that something that you had thought about along the way that they might be buying your business one day? 
no, I wasn't that smart back then. <laughs> I just wasn't that smart. I was too busy creating and researching and uh, developing training and systems and sharing it with the FranNet uh, brokers. I wasn't smart enough to think, um, gee, I might want to position this to to exit at some some point. So it was purely uh, accidental that we got there. Had I been wiser and had good counsel along the way, I probably would have done things dramatically different in hindsight. It's, you know, our best lesson is always in uh, hindsight because I made a lot of mistakes along the way. Uh, mistakes that the only solution to was to um, have FranNet acquire my uh, company. Now, I came out on top, and I'm endlessly uh, grateful, but I was not psychologically at a place where I wanted to sell at that point. But due to um, certain things that I didn't put in place, it was a natural consequence for my uh, biggest client to acquire uh, my company and to acquire my intellectual property and my software. Hindsight is twenty twenty for us. What would be some of those things if you could go back in time you would do differently? Yeah, it would be a list, right, Lori? <laughs> right. How much time we have? No, I'm kidding. Say this. <laughs> no. So the the biggest mistake that that I made was I think it was two things. Number one is I customized the tool to such an extent that it had a single purpose, right? And that was to support uh, the fr franchise brokers that were working under the FranNet uh, umbrella. And um, within that customization, it didn't give me an opportunity to do too much outside of that. So it limited my income to some uh, extent. The second thing that I did uh, poorly was um, put an agreement in place written by an attorney that was for the other side uh, that was a licensing agreement that suggested that I, as a company, Proven Match, could not sell this technology uh, to anyone that would be a competitor to FranNet. And, of course, competitor is a subjective term, and I, you're probably wiser in this department, it's a subjective term. To me, in my mind, the contract was clear. I could not sell to any other franchise brokerage firm or even business brokerage firm. And I was okay with that um, because I could then sell to franchisors and do some other things. Um, so that was my biggest mistake and my biggest uh, downfall was not to have, you know, additional advice about this contract and to define some of these terms more uh, specifically. Ultimately, I had a very big opportunity by what we would call a franchise portal uh, to work with them on a project 
And I ended up telling FranNet about it, wanting to include them into this project. Originally, they were all excited. The next thing I know, I'm slapped with a lawsuit saying this other company was a competitor of theirs. Never in a million years would I have thought that this other company was a competitor. I thought they were complementary. In fact, I wanted to bring uh, my client into the deal. So their view of competitor was very different than my view of uh, a competitor. And ultimately, it brought a beautiful 19-year relationship uh, to a halt, right, a, a standstill. And we are now in dispute after many, many years of a very nice relationship. Wow. What a story. Yeah, those of us who have seen agreements and know when there's language that isn't clear and ignored it or moved on, we know we're taking a risk there because sometimes it can come back and bite us. This is an example of that where competitor, had it been defined a certain way in writing versus one side's interpretation versus the other side's interpretation could have maybe avoided and and led to um, other things. So I appreciate you sharing that story. I think it could be a good lesson for folks listening to make sure you have good counsel. If you have counsel, I mean, maybe that's one issue if people don't use an attorney and they think, oh, I'll just do this myself or mm-hmm. I'll just pull down something from legal Zoom. As our businesses grow, it can be millions of dollars at stake. So it's worth spending, you know, whatever it is, $5,000 or 10,000 shouldn't, it depends. I don't want to give pricing, but I mean, whatever that is, you have to do that risk assessment. So anyway, I appreciate you sharing that with us. It's such an important factor, Lori, that you bring up. Because in my case, the agreement was written by a lawyer that sat on my client's board. That lawyer happened to be a dear friend of mine. So I trusted him and I trusted my client after 19 years. So I didn't even have my own attorney look at it. It was just this, oh, we've been, you know, we've been working 19 years together and blah, 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 right? It didn't even cross my mind. So hopefully if your listeners take one thing away is you need a shrewd attorney when you're building your business that protects your your rear end for you. (laughs) When, When you're just working, like for me, I was working from heart. It was like, Oh, I want everybody to have this, right? And uh, it it bit me. It, it bit me. Now, fortunately, in my case, it was a positive result. In hindsight, it was positive. But going through it, I cried for two years. I cried for two years. I'm like, I cannot believe a relationship that's been so wonderful is now coming to an end. Um, and ultimately, my my client bought my company, 25 years of research, my software, all of the intellectual property, and I was left with nothing. I mean, literally nothing after that, including my identity was gone because I had, this was what I was, or at least I thought that's who I was. 
that my identity was wrapped up into what I had created. And now that it was gone, I didn't know who I was. And I didn't know what to do with me after that. Wow. Identity. That's a show in and of itself. It comes up very often in my conversations. It's something that's so important to you, right? You spent all that time, all the energy and success that you felt was was tied in with that business. How did you move forward? You said it was a lot of tears and I can imagine and thank you for for yeah, sharing that that with me, but how how eventually did you put your therapist hat on for yourself and say, "Okay, here are the tools I talked about with other people. Now it's time for me to use these tools." Yes, that's exactly what happened. I just kept crying and being in disbelief. And um, I did what anyone in that kind of situation should do, in my opinion. And that is reach out to a counselor, reach out to a business coach, uh, you know, where you can confide in them and they can help you reassess who you are and separate who you are from what your business is are two different things. One is an asset that you are building. Um, and the other is who you are and how your mind works and the vision that you have for the future. So I spent, you know, once or twice a week talking to Betsy, <laughs> who was my mentor, my coach, my, you know, get me through it, listen to my tears and, um, she she taught me one thing that was very interesting. She said, you have made your brain and your business your idol, meaning that was who I was. This is what I had become. And as soon as I could remove myself from a place that says, that is not me, that is what I created, and it has value, and I'm able to sell it. But it is not me, right? It is an, it is a part of me that I packaged into something beautiful that had so much value that my clients were willing to fight tooth and nail to get it and ultimately buy it. Um, and so it had me reassess who I was and um, go back and build yet another uh, business, which, of course, is Zoracle. Yeah. So how were you able to do that? You didn't have any restrictions or did you have a time period of a restriction? So I had no no non-competes as part of the uh, sale. I had no restrictions. The other part that was uh, good is my original concern was the intellectual property, right? Because the tools was at that time based on five uh, statistically validated sciences. But because I was using sciences that were open source, meaning this was intellectual property available to Tom, Dick, and Harry, I simply researched it, looked at it, took it, repackaged it, had it have a very specific application in terms of franchisee, franchisor, uh, alignment. So I took something that anyone could have taken and I re-envisioned it. So I was able to create Zorkel using the exact same sciences, right? And then added two additional ones 
and be not be in conflict at all with um, what my client had purchased. It didn't conflict with the intellectual property. I had to be cautious about the visuals of it and the, the software uh, behind it. But the actual science, which is the important part, was open source and uh, I, I was not prevented from using it again. Wow. There's a lot to what you just shared, Rebecca. One of the things that stands out to me is how you said it's it's not me, it's what I've created and it has value. And you went on to create another tool, another company. And I guess you're probably over your life experience now. You do have maybe more arm's length identity to it than you did in the past, but it's still a tool that's in the franchise community and it's helping so many on both sides become successful. So it's great how you've been able to move forward and continue your entrepreneurial drive in a space that you know so well. Yeah. And I think that really is a part of it. You have to remove yourself from the emotion uh, because in hindsight now, 10 years since the sale of uh, Prove a Match, um, my reach is so much bigger. I'm able now to provide the tool to every broker group out there, franchise broker, business broker group, and every franchisor and every vendor, supplier, thought leader within this space where before I was limited by a contract, which meant my uh, income was also uh, limited. So um, you just got to let go of the emotion. It is something you created. It's beautiful. It has value. Sell it. <laughs> And use that brain to create something again. Absolutely. This has been an incredible story. There's so many lessons learned here from finding your niche, making it teachable and transferable, getting good guidance on what really matters in terms of conditions and the legal documents and being able to separate your identity from what you've created and who you are and being able to move forward effectively. I'm sure in your many travels and you're so well read that you have a favorite quote. Is there anything that inspires you that you'd like to share? Well, it kind of goes hand in glove with everything we're talking about, Lori. The quote is, he who is most flexible wins. If we get stuck and doing it a particular way, and we're not adaptable, paying attention to our environment, what's going on in the marketplace, what our competitors are doing. And if we're not flexible, if we're not adaptable, we are going to lose inertia and momentum and ultimately success. So he who is most flexible wins. If people want to get in touch with you, Rebecca, what's a great way to do that? Obviously, always LinkedIn, right? Rebecca Monet. Uh, on LinkedIn, our website is zoricalprofiles.com. Uh, uh, those would be the best ways to get hold of us. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was great to talk to you. Thank you, Lori. To the listeners, thank you so much for your support. Catch Succession Stories on your favorite podcast player or on our YouTube channel. Be sure to subscribe. And if you want to maximize the value of your business and plan for future transition, reach out to me for a complimentary assessment at meetlauriebarkman.com. Join me next time for more insights from transition to transaction. Until then, here's to your success. 
My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand what creates value and what detracts from it, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Hundreds of business owners have taken my complimentary business assessment. As a first step, schedule a call with me by visiting meetlauriebarkman.com. That's meetlauriebarkman.com.